Well, good afternoon. Before we start, would you pray with me, please? Well, Father, we thank you for the privilege of having your word in our language. We thank you for the freedom that we have to open it and to study and read and hear from it. And so we ask, Father, that you would magnify our time and maximize our time here today. Give us understanding, press your word deep into our heart, and conform us more and more into the image of your Son as we yield to your word. Come and have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please take your Bibles and open to the book of Galatians, as you well know, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, uh, if you'd find yourself in verse 16, and follow along as I read from verse 16 through 18, Galatians 5, 16 through 18, the Apostle Paul is moved by the Holy Spirit to write in verse 18, but if, or 16, sorry, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Well, in our text, the apostle Paul has been describing, or is describing, the Christian's life. And it is a life lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. As you have just read, the Christian's life is one of conflict, a conflict within themselves, but there is great victory promised and provided for. Now, our passage finds itself in the midst of a larger section, which began back in chapter 5, verse 1, and that section goes all the way to the end of the letter, the end of chapter 6. So our section, verses 5, chapters 5 and 6, is in the flow of the whole letter. So there's four chapters that have gone on previously, obviously. In those four chapters, previous to chapter 5 and 6, Paul so carefully and systematically defended and explained the gospel of free grace. He was compelled to do so, as you very well know, because false teachers came with their false gospel, their false teachings, and the believers in Galatia were beginning to be swayed by the legalism that was being taught. They came saying, the false teachers did, you must be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved, in order to be justified. They said, faith in Christ is not enough. You must keep the law of Moses in order to be right before God. If you were to stand right before God and be accepted, you must keep the law. If you want to grow in godliness, if you want to grow in in holiness, if you want to be sanctified, you must keep the law of Moses, is their teaching. Their false teaching ultimately denies the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. His atoning death and resurrection are not enough to save you, nor are they to sanctify you in this false gospel. So serious is this error, as we know, That Paul wrote things like, in chapter 1, anybody who teaches that, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him go to hell, is basically what we would say if we use that Greek term. 
In chapter 2, verse 21, Paul wrote this, if, if you are justified by works, then Christ died needlessly. Needlessly. So serious is this that, that in chapter 3, Paul said, if you follow such a teaching, you are a fool who has been bewitched. In chapter 5, Paul wrote, it's so serious that if you follow this legalism, you are severed from Christ and fallen from grace. And in chapter 5, verse 8, he says this finally, he says, this did not come from God. This teaching of legalism did not come from God. This persuasion did not come from him who called you. Well, if it didn't come from him who called you, from whom did it come? It came from the devil. It did not come from God. So then understanding and knowing the gospel of free grace, we can say, is a matter of life or death. The gospel of free grace is that important. So from explaining the gospel in the first four chapters and coming to chapter 5, he begins to apply the gospel of grace. In other words, how to live out this gospel in our daily life. It's doctrine and practice, if you will. If you look at verse 1, Max has already taken us through this, but I, I want you to draw your attention to verse 1 of chapter 5 that starts this section where he's applying the gospel. Notice what it says there. It says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The issue, obviously, the topic, the subject, the main really foundation of this book is freedom. As has already been said in the many weeks before, liberty in Christ, freedom, freedom from the law, freedom from its demands, from its regulations, from its penalties, from the condemnation of those who cannot keep the law perfectly, which is all of us, so that in Christ Jesus, He has fulfilled all of them on our behalf. He has paid the penalty that we incurred by not keeping the law. He died. He died as a curse, chapter 3 of Galatians. This freedom that is ours in Christ is just the opposite of what the false teachers were bringing against this church in Galatia. The legalism is a form of slavery. If you've ever been a part of a legalistic church, if you've ever seen a legalistic church, you know what I speak of. The people there are in bondage. Because you're living according to out, outer demands, you're living according to regulations, and they dictate every aspect of your life. Faith is not required. Paul says that in Galatians. It's work, work, work. Works of the flesh, not faith. It demands, the law does, perfect obedience. Therefore, the law condemns the sinner. We're free from that in Christ Jesus, you see. Coming then to faith in Christ, you have been set free and are no longer a slave under the law. Now, I remind you, just to set this, we've been here, but listen to chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 24 and 25. Listen to what he says. Therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. 
We now, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. We've been delivered. We live by faith now, not by works. We live by faith. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then this, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. In chapter 3, verse 11, he says, Now that no one is justified by law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. The Christian life, the life of the free gospel of grace, is a life of faith. It's a life of trusting in God. This life of freedom then, remember back in chapter 5, verse 1, we're talking about freedom, and this carries on to the rest of this chapter and into chapter 6, but the freedom that he speaks about, the freedom that is ours in Christ Jesus, is a life of faith. It, and this faith that we possess, which is a gift from God, the faith which looked to Christ initially at conversion and justification is the same faith we possess now and live by in sanctification. Ever since you were converted, that same faith that looked to Christ is what you're living by today. It's a, it's a life of faith. And this is what Paul is hammering in Galatians. Works doesn't justify and works doesn't sanctify. It's looking to Christ. It's faith. This faith that we possess is vibrant, active, and alive. It's not dead, but it works. As, as 5.6 told us already, notice what he says in 5.6 of Galatians. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. This faith working through love. The Christian life, then, is summarized right there. It's faith in Christ, and that faith is vibrant and active and works through love. Okay? That sounds like James 2. Faith without works is what? Dead. Can that faith save you? James would say, nada. No. Right? True saving faith has a vibrancy that produces works, and the works produced by that faith is love. And that's what... Galatians 5.6 is saying, legalism is working in our own power and according to our own rules to earn favor with God. Legalism is by nature, it is focused entirely on me, on self. Legalism is concentrating on my performance, my progress in my performance. And it stems from and leads to religious pride and self-righteousness. Faith is not involved in legalism. It's not trusting in Christ. It's trusting in self. As Philippians 3 said, Paul says, confidence in my flesh, confidence in myself, not in Christ. In Luke 18, 9, just the Pharisees are mentioned by Christ. And listen to what it says in Luke 18, 9, which is a perfect example of, an illustration of a legalist. He, it says in 18.9 of Luke, and he also told this parable to some people, now listen, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. That's a legalist. 
If you've ever been legalistic, that's you, right? That's our natural bent, our natural tendency is to say, man, look at me, and compared to Daniel, you know, man, I'm doing pretty good, just kidding. That's what Daniel thinks about me. But you see, that's what we think about ourselves, you see. Now, bring that now to verse 13 of of 5, of Galatians 5.13. And last week's message speaks about the practice of this freedom. In verse 13, you were called to freedom, okay? The practice of freedom here. here. We are free by God's grace and the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and free by faith in Christ. And this faith is busy about loving others. And this is a life, according to 513, of service as each other's slave. If you notice there, already brought out last week, through love, the end of verse 13, serve one another. And the idea of the word serve there is to serve as a slave. So this life of faith is a life of freedom, free from the penalty, condemnation, regulations, stipulations, and rules of the law. We're now free to serve one another lovingly as a slave. This is the product of grace, the free grace of God. The gospel of grace, now get this, according to what we're reading, the gospel of grace produces a community of slaves who love one another. That's what the gospel of grace does. Legalism does not do that. And Paul is strongly saying this. This fulfills verse 14. Notice what it says. For the whole law is fulfilled in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law demanded this but could not produce it because of the weakness of our flesh. The law of Moses is outside of us and could not affect our nature. But God has come and done something miraculous through Jesus Christ. And now we are free to do that which the law said to do. And that is to love our neighbor as ourself. If you get to verse 15, look at what it says. But if you bite and devour one another, take care you're not consuming one another. Those verbs are graphic description of people not living by faith, but by their own strength. Those are, that's the product of legalism in verse 15. They eat their own. right? Legalists eat their own. In legalism, and I'm hammering this because the more I chew on this, it's, more, it's, it's what our propensity is by nature. And so I know it speaks to every one of us, including the preacher. We all have a natural tendency to legalism. So I want to make sure that, if anything, that drum is beating in your head. Legalism does not produce the love that the gospel of grace produces. Legalism only bears frustration and sham and failure. Therefore, according to verse 15, they act like mere animals. The life that is pleasing to God, in contrary, is one that is centered on Christ by faith. Okay? Now, that brings us to verse 16. (laughs) Here is the power for freedom. In this flow of thought, Paul now comes to this marvelous crescendo in verse 16 and says the power to live out verse 13, the power to not do 15 is verse 16. You see, that's the command there in 16 is to walk by the Spirit That is the power for freedom. 
That's the power to live out the gospel of grace. That's the power to live the Christian life. And the power is needed because verse 17 and 18 speaks of a conflict. So in order to live this life of freedom, we must obey the command in verse 16 and be aware of the conflict in 17 and 18. Okay, So the command there in verse 16 then to us who are believers is to walk by the Spirit. And notice in verse 16, he starts with a contrast, but, but I say. So in contrast to verse 15, instead of consuming one another and treating each other like animals who are starving and trying to devour one another, in contrast to that, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk. It's a present tense. It's an imperative that is commanding us to continually, constantly be of the habit of walking by the Spirit. This is to always be happening. We're to always be walking in the power of the Spirit. The idea of walking, it has the idea of step by step as one as in one's daily conduct, in, one, in one's daily behavior, in one's habits. It is his manner of life is to be under the power of the Holy Spirit. His way of life, he's to live in the Spirit. The command is to be of, of the constant habit of being under the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to commit our life to this. We are to consciously yield to the Spirit of God. Consciously, okay? The idea of walk is used in many places. I just want to pick up a few of these just to set it in our brain. Paul uses this in Ephesians many places, but listen to Ephesians 2. If you were dead, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of of this air, according to the prince of the power of the air and of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. He speaks about how we used to live the manner of our life before we were converted, and he calls it a walk. Verse, verse 1, chapter 4 of Ephesians, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Okay, so to live out a life worthy of being called a Christian. And so he uses that in many places. The command in Galatians 5.16 is to have our life yielded and under the control of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now think of this with me, please. When you look at 5.16 of Galatians, the command, the power to live life for Christ, the power to love as a... In, in the, the manner of verse 13 is to, is to allow the Holy Spirit to dominate me, to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is equal with God in every way because He is God. And please, I hope no one here calls the Holy Spirit it. That's how offensive is that. He is a person. He is every bit as a person as we think of Jesus Christ or God the Father. He is God, and therefore he is equal to God in every way. He, this one then, who is equal with God because he is God, indwells every true believer and has since conversion. 
He is also present and per, a permanent residence in every single true believer's heart. He doesn't come and go. But the command is to walk by him. So something's not happening sometimes. Okay? We, could, we could live not by the Spirit because the command is to walk by the Spirit. So he's not questioning the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He's questioning whether he is leading us. He's questioning whether you're following, whether you're submitted to him. Okay, now listen. He's already mentioned the Holy Spirit. Go back to chapter 3, if you would, in Galatians. Can I just show you a couple places where Paul has mentioned the Holy Spirit before? Verse 2 of chapter 3 of Galatians This is the only thing I want to find out from you, Paul writes. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay. So obviously, the Galatians to whom he's writing, whom he does not question their conversion, is saying in chapter 3, that they have received, they have welcomed the Spirit of God when they first believed. And it was, it was by faith, not by works. And so he's also telling us something in verse 3. The Spirit's work in their life is to perfect them, and the perfecting of them does not come from works of the law. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Okay, Not legalism. It's by faith and the work of the Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 14... Please. He says in, that Christ hung on the tree and was become a curse for everyone. For us, he himself become a curse for us. In verse 13, verse 14, this was that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive, notice, the promise of the Spirit. How? Through faith. Okay. So we are indwelt by the Spirit of God at the moment of conversion. When you believed, you received Him by faith. When you trusted in Christ, the Spirit came into your life. Okay? Into your life. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God dwells, present tense, in you? He dwells in us always. If the Spirit of God departs from you, you're no longer converted. (laughs) You're no longer justified. You're no longer saved. Okay? He, he's not going to leave you. He's permanently there. And he's, he is who made you a Christian. Okay? The Spirit. And so he's essential in our lives. We, we don't think of him much. And we often, because of the whole charismatic thing, we, we, we turn away from him and throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we give the Holy Spirit and his glory to some false teachers. We should be the ones strongly defending and lifting up the work of the Holy Spirit because he is part, he is God. And he is in our life. If you're converted, if you are regenerated, if you are justified by faith, you are for a fact indwelt presently and permanently with the third person of the Trinity. And he's who made you a Christian. and He's who ministers to you. Okay, So let's, let's get this in our mind. And so Paul writes to those who are already indwelt by the Spirit of God, walk by the Spirit of God. Walk by him. Okay, Now, in chapter 4 of Galatians, look at verse 6, please. Not only are we said to have received him through faith... Chapter 4, verse 6 says, Because you are sons already, God has sent forth, notice, the spirit of his son 
into where? Our hearts. And from there we cry out, Abba, Father. Okay, now, the Spirit in verse 6 of chapter 4 is said to be in our hearts, in our inner person, in our minds, in our hearts. Okay, that's where He dwells. He resides with us. And we're commanded to yield to Him, to be under His control. You don't have to turn there, but... I remind you of Ephesians 5.18 where we are commanded as believers to be being filled by the Holy Spirit. It is a command to constantly yield to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. To those who have already received Him, we're commanded to be filled, to be under His control, to be under His influence. Okay? Um, so then, back to Galatians 5.16, we're being commanded to continually walk by, to live by, to yield to the Spirit of God. Okay? It is commanding the believer to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way, now listen, with our minds, with our hearts, our emotions, our words, our attitudes, our thoughts, our deeds, Every aspect of us is to be under the influence of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the living God, I remind you. Therefore, He is living and active. He has emotions Himself. He has a will. He has a purpose. God the Father didn't willy-nilly just said, I'm just going to throw the Spirit out on you. Right? He, he sent His Holy Spirit to indwell His people for a myriad of reasons. Can I just throw these by you? Just, it's, it demands a study all its own. Of course, we're not going to do it, but listen to this just to remind you. The Spirit makes us spiritually alive. The Spirit illumines God's Word to our minds and guides us in the truth. The Spirit teaches us, comforts us, secures us in Christ for all eternity. He's the seal. He convinces us that we are beloved sons of God. He works in us and through us so that we cry out, Abba, Father. That's convincing us of the Father's acceptance of us because we look to Him as Daddy. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He empowers us for service in His church. He gives us gifts for that service. He conforms us into the likeness of the Son, which is finished finally when He raises us up from the dead in a resurrected body. And since He is God, He is leading us. His leading us is never contrary to God. It's never contrary to His Word because the Spirit's the author, ultimately, of the Word of God. Therefore, He's going to lead you never contrary to His Word. He'll never lead you into sin. In fact, you have to go no further than verse 22 of chapter 5. If He's leading us, if He's guiding us, look where He's leading us. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit is leading us in that way. This is His work. And remember chapter 5, verse 6, where it said that faith is working through love. Remember verse 13 says, we were called to freedom, but don't use your opportunity the freedom for an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Here is the fruit, the product of the Holy Spirit is love. Walk by the Spirit. Now notice in verse 16 of chapter 5, 
the glorious promise, the absolute guarantee, a life lived under the power of the Spirit cannot fail but to please God. Do you see it there in 16? It cannot fail but to please God. It is impossible to live out the fleshly desires if you're walking by the Spirit. Because look what he says. And you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, he uses a double negative in verse 16 there to emphasize this truth. The one walking by the Spirit will not in any way carry out. It's an absolute impossibility, the way it's phrased, to carry out the desire of the flesh. Think of the other side of it. Apart from the Holy Spirit, it's just as the opposite. It's just as true. You can in no way. It's absolutely impossible to please God. As was read, the call to worship in Romans 8, that those in the flesh cannot please God. Not those in the body, but those under the, the unredeemed flesh. Those who are void of the Holy Spirit cannot please God. This text is telling us why. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Listen to Romans 8, 6, and 7. It was already read this morning, but listen again. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Quite a contrast. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It's an enemy of God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. Why? It's not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. So then the Spirit is the only power that is powerful enough to suppress the flesh. Law only agitates and invigorates it. We learn that in Romans 7. Because of the flesh's rebellious nature, because of our depravity, the law does not suppress the flesh. It only agitates it. It's like telling your little kid, don't jump on the bed. What's that little sucker want to do? As soon as you turn your back, he wants to go jump on the bed, right? That's his sinful nature, you see? That's just like me. When God says to the unconverted, don't do this, what does your unconverted flesh want to do? It wants to do that because that's its natural disposition. It is hostile to God, you see? So legalism does nothing to suppress the flesh. Legalism does nothing for justification, and legalism does nothing for holiness, for, for growing in holiness, for sanctification. It's faith in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, walking by the Spirit, you see? All right. Now, the flesh is not, as we said, just get this, please. The flesh is the, we mean, what we mean by that in this context is not physical body, Merely, but it is the unredeemed humanness, the yet sinful aspect of our person, that the fallen humanness, our, our sinful humanness. The flesh then, get this, has a natural disposition as a result of the fall that is contrary to God. Now look at verse 16 again. It says there, you will not carry out, if you walk by the Spirit, the desire of the flesh. The flesh has a desire. Strong word, this desire. Listen to Ephesians 2, 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts, there's our word, of the flesh, indulging 
the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Okay? Now, the word desire here is translated in other places as passion, craving, lust. It's not always negative, though. It just depends on the context. For instance, do you not have a strong desire to be with Christ? I hope so. That's the same word where Paul said in Philippians 1.23, to depart and be with Christ. I desire that. Same word. Okay? So it's not always negative, but it's often in a context of lustful, sinful passions. Okay? The flesh has this insatiable passion for evil, for that which is contrary to God. This is what he's talking about here in verse 16. If you walk by the Spirit, the Spirit is the power that suppresses and controls the lusts, passions of the sinful flesh. Okay? Nothing else will, by the way. You can work all the harder you want, and you can get rid of all the devices you want, like the monks did back in the early days, and go live on a mountain somewhere. Guess what their problem was? It was them. They were still there, right? They still have memories <laughs> of how it used to be that conjure up in their flesh, you see. What is it that controls your sinful flesh? The Holy Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, these strong passions that's in the word desire here are very powerful, and we often succumb to them in temptations. But here the Holy Spirit, as we have said, is the power to overcome them, to suppress them. It is these fleshly desires when obeyed. Now listen in the context here. It is these fleshly desires when obeyed that keep us from loving one another. Because your flesh loves itself better than anybody it's ever met. Right? And everybody else is at least second. <laughs> Which is last. <laughs> right? Therefore, the command in verse 16 must be obeyed in order to love, according to verse 13. Now, this leads us then to verse 17. In the, he explains, it starts with 4 in verse 17, and here is the conflict. If verse 16 is the command in this life for Christ, here is the need to obey the command, is to understand the conflict that each of us are in. Please notice this in verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. Here he answers why we must walk by the spirit. For the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit is against the flesh. The word there sets its desire is is the same word that's found in verse 16, but it is in this, these verbs are in a present tense in this passage, which tells you this is the ongoing life of every true believer in Christ. Every true believer is in this conflict. Every true believer must walk by the Spirit in order to have victory over the flesh, okay, over temptation. Because every true believer is in the midst of this conflict. Now, he says here, sets its desire in verse 17. It has the idea of being across one another in face to face. It is this idea that he is constantly, continually 
in this agitation, in this hostility. The flesh is always desiring and lusting against the Holy Spirit. And on the contrary, the Spirit is always constantly against the flesh. Always. Never does the Spirit say, okay, just this once, though. Right? No. As long as you and I are in this body before physical death, we will be engaged in this daily conflict. We will be assaulted by the flesh. The flesh is our constant companion and constant enemy. When we die, we are released from this fallen flesh and delivered from this battle, hallelujah, but not until then. I think that's so important to realize. Christians are so wrongly taught, are they not? That if you're born again, you shouldn't have any problems. You shouldn't have any temptation. You shouldn't be involved in any conflict in your inner person. You're a new creature, right? Sin has no, no problem with you anymore. They need to read this. This should encourage us. Notice, it's not the conflict that tells us I'm not saved. It's just the opposite. The conflict is actually evidence perhaps more than anything that you are saved. Because if the flesh does not hate the flesh before the spirit comes, guess what? You're not fighting anything. You're just deciding which avenue to take that's sinful. Right? But now that you're born again and indwelt by the Spirit, now you have a resident opposition that hates the flesh, and the flesh hates the Spirit. And you have this battle going on, you see. When, and that battle will rage on until the day Jesus takes you home. But notice in, in our text here, verse 17, that it's only those who are in the Spirit who are engaged in the conflict it's only those who are in the spirit who understand this battle. The unregenerate person who has not the Holy Spirit does not know of this battle. Oh, they might feel guilty of being caught, but they don't hate sin and they don't pursue holiness. They don't because they have no desire for it any more than a mule would desire to go swimming in the ocean. It's not in their nature, you see. Think of this, the unregenerate, only the lust of the flesh controls the unregenerate person. And he is only yielded to the flesh. He has no option. The unregenerate person, again, doesn't know of the conflict, doesn't know of any victory over the flesh because he doesn't even care to have victory over the flesh. It's not his desire. He has no desire to please God and no ability to please God. This is you and I before we were saved, before the Spirit came. Again, I remind you, Romans 8, 7, and 8, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And then this, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, obviously, in the flesh doesn't mean in the body. But what it means is unregenerate. Because in Romans 8, the contrast is either you're in the spirit or in the flesh. You are in the spirit. Therefore, you can please God. You see? The spirit is battling against your flesh. 
It says there in verse 17 of Galatians 5, where it says that these are in opposition to one another. They are in constant battle. Constant. These are all present tense. This is constantly happening, beloved. Constantly happening. And and it goes on to say the result of this opposition to one another in verse 17, it says, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now the question there is from many different sides, but I'm going to just state where I land on. I think it's talking about the flesh. In other words, the spirit keeps you, your sinful flesh, from doing what it would please to do. So it, the spirit is the suppressor of your flesh. Okay? Now, don't be discouraged because of your constant battle with your sinful flesh as though that is a sign that you are not saved or even a very godly person. Your battle is a sign that you are of God. And I would say, it, I don't know if we black and white on it, but I'll say this, it's more likely a sign that you are a maturing believer in Christ because of the conflict, not the practice of it, <laughs> right? Not, not the practice of the sin, but the battle. Oh, we'll fall into it. Yes, we'll, we'll come to the edge and stumble and fall down into the, 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 the abyss and the foul stench of sin, but we won't stay there. We'll do 1 John 1, 9, right? We'll, we'll say we'll confess our sin and he's faithful and just to cleanse us and to forgive us, from all, or to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our sin, you see? But we're not going to live in the abyss, That's where the unregenerate lives. But those who have been free in Christ through faith in Christ and indwelt by the Spirit are going to battle the flesh's temptation to throw you into the abyss. You're going to be a stubborn resistance of, of the flesh trying to drag you and throw you into the sinful abyss. And the power to resist is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, that's why you're being commanded to yield to him and not to yourself, not to the flesh. Yield to the Spirit. And what is? And if you listen and look in verse 19, look at what it says. And we'll look at this next week more intently. But now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. And he goes on down through there. Those are what the flesh is about. The flesh wants to drag you into that cesspool. Those are horrible verses, aren't they? Makes me want to take a shower. It's like, poof. That's where the flesh wants to drag you. But in verse 22, notice where the Spirit wants to lead you. The fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, and so on. So then, the conflict is not a sign that you're not godly or a sign that you're not converted. It's just the opposite. But if you were to fall prey in practice, look at 521. Real quick, it says, Envy and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, notice real importantly, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So the conflict and the resistance and the battle, that's a good sign. But to succumb to the degree that it's considered a practice 
that's not so good <laughs> because that person will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is the conflict is a sign that you belong to him. One pastor said this, a Christian is not a person who experiences no bad desires. We often hear that, don't we, that if you're a Christian, those, those, those ungodly thoughts and desires won't come to you. That's not true. Okay? And uh, many of truly born-again people have crashed and burned on those things and been tormented in their soul, especially those that come from legalistic backgrounds. I hope that it, we would be able to exalt the free grace of God and to show the true gospel of free grace to show the difference. That that's not true. A Christian is not a person who does not experience bad desires. A Christian is a person who's at war with those desires by the power of the Holy Spirit. Conflict in your soul is not all bad. Even though we long for the day when our flesh, continuing his statement, will be utterly defunct and only pure and loving desires will fill our hearts someday, yet there is something worse than the war within between flesh and spirit. Get this. There's something worse than the war within between flesh and spirit. What is it? Namely, no war at all within flesh, within ourselves, because the flesh controls the citadel and all the outposts if there's no conflict. Praise God for the war within, he says. Serenity in sin is death. We should have a holy hatred for our sin. The Spirit has landed, he says, to do battle with the flesh. So take heart if, you, if your soul feels like a battlefield at times. The sign of whether you are indwelt by the Spirit is not that you have no bad desires, but that you are at war with them. That's, that'll preach. <laughs> That's worth standing on right there. They are in opposition to one another, therefore you will have a battle. You will have a battle within Martin Luther is a, is a hero of mine in many ways. In many ways, he's not, but in many ways, he is. And he's a man of his time. And God raised him up for a purpose. And he suffered greatly with, with these sinful passions, and he writes some really good stuff. And I have some lengthy quotes here, so please... I hope I can read them in such a way to keep your attention. But this is from Martin Luther in the 1520s. When I was a monk, he writes, I thought I was lost forever whenever I felt an evil emotion, carnal lust, wrath, hatred, or envy. I tried to quiet my conscience in many ways, but it did not work because lust would always come back and give me no rest. I told myself, you have permitted this and that sin, envy, impatience, and the like. Your joining this holy order, of being a monk, has been in vain. And all your good works are good for nothing. If at that time I had understood this passage, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, I could have spared myself many a day of self-torment. I would have said to myself, Martin... You will never be without sin. You have flesh. Despair not, but resist the flesh. Right? That's good stuff. 
Luther went on to say this. No man is to despair of salvation just because he's aware of the lust of the flesh. Let him be aware of it so long as it does not, that he does not yield to it. The passion of lust, wrath, and other vices may shake him, but they are not to get him down. Sin may assail him, but he is not to welcome it. Yes, the better Christian a man is, the more he will experience the heat of the conflict. Now, why would that be? If, if you are growing, if, we, if we're more spiritually mature, if that's a way to say that, if we're growing in Christ's likeness, if we're becoming more holy in our person in the sense of being more like Jesus Christ, would we not have a more holy hatred of that which he hates? And that is sin. And this is my sin that I should hate first and foremost. And we should be living hard to put it to death. If you walk by the Spirit, Paul says, you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now, why is that? Well, the conflict is the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And for these are in opposition to one another constantly, I add, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, look at verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Isn't that great? <laughs> the conflict with these desires does not tell you you're not, not only are you, it, it's evidence that you are indwelt and are being led by the Spirit. It's a great word of comfort to us in verse 18. Even though you are in the midst of conflict in your inner person, it is true that you are being led by the Spirit for a fact. If you are led, or maybe better put, the grammar would allow us here to say since or because you are being led by the Spirit. It's not questioning it. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. It, it's a fact. If since you are being led by the Spirit, just coming off of verse 17 in that conflict and the opposition, since you are being led by the Spirit, guess what? You're not under the law. He said that same thing in Romans 8.14. He says it like this in Romans 8.14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These are the sons of God. And it's interesting because Galatians 3.26 says you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So believing in Christ is the means of sonship. Those who are being led by the Spirit is evidence that they are sons of God. The believer then is being led for a fact by the Spirit. In verse 18, it's interesting. In verse 16, it was, a, it was a present tense directed to the believer to act on this. Walk by the Spirit. So he looks at you and he points to you and he says, Sister, walk by the Spirit. That's 16. Verse 18, he says, you are being led by the Spirit. Now look, it's a passive tense verb in verse 18. Passive means the subject's being acted upon, okay? You're receiving, you're passive in the action. So one pastor said that the Holy Spirit leads us not like the pace car in the Indianapolis 500, and we're trying to keep up with him, 
but he's like a locomotive that's attached to the train. Okay? He leads us, and you're attached. That's verse 16. Be attached to the train. Ver, uh, John 15, abide in the vine, abide in Christ. You are indwelt by the Spirit. The Spirit's leading, but are you following? And that's what verse 16 is saying. Walk by the Spirit, the Spirit that is leading you, the Spirit that is leading. But are you following? Are you walking? That's 16 and 18 together here, okay? So victory is provided by God, not only through the cross, burial, and resurrection, but the Holy Spirit has been sent to you to give you the power to live for Christ. And the power to live for Christ is to die to yourself and to be each other's slaves, doing loving deeds constantly, constantly, constantly. That's how that happens. It's fascinating. So then what he is emphasizing in verse 18 by saying the Spirit leads, he is saying that the Spirit is active in this work and you and I are to yield to it, to yield to him. He's leading us against our flesh, okay? He's the captain who's leading, if in my mind, this company against the enemy. Are you following him? Are you following him? He's leading you towards holiness. He's leading you toward Christ-likeness. Now, why do I say that? Look at verse 22 again in 23. Those are aspects of the fruit. Fruit is that which is produced by the Holy Spirit, who is the perfect manifestation of the fruit of the Spirit, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, the perfect man, who came not only as the substitutionary atonement and and the sacrifice for salvation, but he also came as an example to follow. Is he not the perfect one who's loved even his enemies. He is the perfect one of joy. He's the perfect one of self-control. All the attributes, if you want to call them that, all the fruit of the Spirit, the aspects there in verses 22 and 23 are perfectly exemplified and pictured in the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, if you're walking in the Spirit and being led by the Spirit, the Spirit is actively leading you to Christ-likeness, and that is love. Joy, peace, that's good stuff. The law commanded that, but couldn't do it because of the weakness of my flesh. But God can do that through his Son and the indwelling Holy Spirit so that those who walk not by flesh but by spirit fulfill the requirement of the law, which is to love, and that's to be like God. That's to be like Christ. Isn't that glorious? It makes me happy. The free grace of God in the gospel of grace is how God produces a community of people like that. And only he can do it through the gospel. Only. Only. So then, if you look here again at verse 18, if you are led or if you're being led Since you're being led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You've been delivered out from the law. The law has no jurisdiction over you because the activity of your life is not condemned by God. You've been freed from that. 
Listen to a few of these verses and I'll leave you alone. <laughs> In Romans 6.14, he says, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. Every believer is not under law but under grace. And in Romans 7, 4 through 7, listen to these words. I hope this is clear here. Romans 7, 4 through 7. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Now listen to this. You were made to die already to the law through the body of Christ. So the death of Christ, the body of Christ hanging on the tree is the means by which when you had faith in him, you were, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ who was crucified, buried, and raised. You are, you are united with the resurrected Christ in order, purpose, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh... The sinful passions which were aroused, stirred up by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. We had no power to, to obey the law of righteousness, and it didn't produce righteousness, it produced sin because of our flesh. But now, finally, we have been released from the law already. How? Having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. You see, Christ has come and released us through his death and burial and resurrection. His resurrected person is no longer subject to the law and death. He's been freed from it through his righteous resurrection. And we are united to him. Therefore, we are no longer under law but under grace. And not only because of that union with him who is perfectly righteous, the Holy Spirit who indwells us, leads us in his is guiding us, empowering us to live in obedience to him, is producing in us Christ-likeness, fruit of the Spirit. And it says in Galatians that there's no law against the fruit of the Spirit. The law is for criminals. The law is for sin. So if you don't sin by living out the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law to condemn you. And that's what he's saying here. And all of that is made possible by the gospel of free grace, not legalism, not legalism. So then we say, if you're led by the Spirit, then you're free from the law and free to serve God, free to love one another. If you're being led by the Spirit and are walking by the Spirit, then you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Though the conflict happens daily, the Holy Spirit is the power for freedom to resist and overcome the desires of the flesh. So then, where are you with that? Are you in the fight? Are you battling your sinful flesh? If, you're, if so, are you growing weary and depressed as the battle rages on? And you think to yourself, is it worth it? I'm tired. Maybe I'm not saved. No, be encouraged from the fight as we read 
This is a fight for Christ's likeness. So you look to him and you follow him and you trust him and obey the command to walk by the Spirit. Choose to resist the flesh by submitting to the Spirit, by doing deeds of love for one another. How do you know the Spirit is working in a person's life? Are they doing deeds of love? I mean, the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know it's an apple tree? I'm not a farmer, so I look at a tree and I say, man, that's just a tree in the wintertime. But when the fruit's on the tree, right, how do you know it's an apple tree? It's got an apple on it. How do you know the Spirit is working in your life? Oh, there's an apple. Oh, love, joy, peace, you see? And it's the gospel that produces that community of spirit-controlled people. So then let us walk by the spirit, and we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that has made all of this possible. You have sent your son to pay our penalty and to deliver us from your wrath and from the judgment and the penalty of the law. You have been raised from the dead to secure our justification. And Lord, we thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit and his multiple faceted ministry. And in particular, this one here, where he is the one who produces a Christ-like holiness in our lives. Help us, Father to walk by the Spirit. We want to glorify your holy name. We want to please you. So come and do this work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.